0: and BBC History Reveal. I'm Ellie Cawthorne. Traitors have played a fascinating role in British history, highlighting crucial questions about the evolving relationship between individual rights and the power of the state. But why is there still a treason law on the statute books? And when treason is defined as a crime against the monarch, How do you brand a king a traitor? Speaking with Kev Lotchen, Mark Cornwell, professor of modern European history at the University of Southampton, discusses what it means to betray a nation.
1: Now Mark, today we're talking about treason and traitors, which is one of your focus areas of research. I wonder if we should start with quite a top-level query here. How exactly do we define a traitor?
2: Yes, thank you. That's that's always an interesting question because we all know what a murderer is and that's quite easy to define, but a traitor is much more difficult to define and I would say it's an individual who is plotting or carrying out a activity against the state in a very dangerous way, it could be uh, plotting against um, a regime could actually be plotting against the community really in a fundamental way to bring it down or well, that's how it's that's how it's perceived by those who prosecute traitors uh which is the state essentially but it's 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 always difficult because we see you know you can define treason in law it's almost every country in the world has a treason law of some kind and have had for the last 2 3000 years you know but Obviously, traitor, the words traitor and treason are, of, are often used also uh, as terms of abuse, politically uh, Politically, particularly. So there's a bit of a difference there. Um, you know, people use the word traitor in a very casual way, meaning somebody who's disloyal, should be one of us and has broken that allegiance. But I really almost prefer to be quite specific in thinking about it: uh, uh, treason as defined in law because it's much easier to pin down there. Although, having said that, it's also quite vague in law as well. You know, the, the, the research I've done on this, um, which um, runs through the centuries and I teach about this topic, um, we're always having to think, rethink, actually, what treason means uh, in different centuries, really.
1: We're going to come back to some of those examples and your research later on. But you did mention something really interesting there, where treason can be quite vague. And I wonder, could we extrapolate a bit on what treason has meant at different times through history.
2: Okay. I think treason is a fascinating topic because it does have a thread which is the same throughout the centuries, which is, as I've said, it's trying to uh, individuals who are trying to, who are betraying the state or betraying the regime in some way. But it's also particular to each um, century, certainly. So by studying it, actually, we, we learn a lot about the existing regime in a particular century. I'll try and think of a few examples here. I mean, I think the the type of treason we have in early modern Britain where treason was defined very much against uh, as an act against the monarch, that's very different to the kind of treason we see in the 20th century which is essentially tends to be about betraying state secrets. I mean, it's become much more bound up with espionage, English law, and I'm saying English treason law because the key English treason law is the law of 1351, which is still on the statute books. Very interestingly, and then covered Britain when England and Scotland linked up covered Britain as well. But that is that's always rather different to treason in other parts of the world, which is usually a bit kind of uh, more more focused on trying to bring down the regime or, or threats to the state from outside, outside essentially. So. Um, yeah, I mean, treason Treason means different things in different states, in different countries. It also evolved, has evolved through the centuries and it actually tells us quite a lot about the nature of um, uh, who's in control of the state, I suppose. You know, if, it, if it's an autocrat, if it's a monarch, if it's a dictator, um, treason is handled in a rather different way to, let's say, in a democratic society uh, where there's a... Um, Different relationship between the state and the uh, the community of the individuals.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's a fascinating kind of history there. And one thing you mentioned was uh, the evolution of that term through time. And so a little while back, you wrote a piece on treason for BBC History Magazine, which um, listeners will be able to read on History Extra once this podcast is out. Um, But it lines up my next question quite neatly. My next question is: What can the span of Trees in Charles Who history. Tell us a bit about the evolution between uh the relationship between individual rights and the state that is prosecuting these cases.
2: I think it tells you about the well, as I've said, it tells you about the the relationship between the regime running a state and people in the community. Um, And we see a definite shift in how treason is interpreted after the French Revolution from the 1790s, because obviously we've got more rights given to individuals, sovereign rights are given to the people rather than resting just uh, with the monarch or with the the government. So the government from the many governments, not all of course, but many governments from the time of the uh, French Revolution had to rethink what treason meant, and you see a shift there to treason being defined as a crime often against the state or against the kind of state community, rather than just against the monarch. So I think Uh, You know, if you look at, actually, if you look at most treason cases or treason trials before the 18th century, it's almost always bound up with treason against the monarch or against whoever's in control of the, you know, usually often an individual. And we could go right back there to, let's say, the Roman Empire, where treason became very arbitrarily prosecuted under the Roman emperors. It was really what the Roman emperor decided was treason. And some of that continued certainly through the centuries. And when we get to the British early modern period uh, under the Tudors and the Stuarts, uh, the Tudors is a very good example. You've got a lot of cases of treason there. It tells you a lot about the way that Tudor monarchs like Henry VIII and Elizabeth I really saw traitors around them who had to be dealt with. And they introduced a vast number of new treason laws, actually, the Tudors, to deal with particular threats to their power. So that's a very different case than, let's say, going a few centuries further, you know, further into the 19th century, where uh, you don't get Queen Victoria kind of laying down (laughs) uh, uh, new treason laws and actually... Yeah, you don't get much use of treason law actually in Britain from the nineteenth century. There are there are some notorious cases in the twentieth century, but on the whole, Britain, I would say, evolved from using treason law to by the 19th, 20th century, using other laws to deal with security threats, really. But I mean that's the that's the British case. But you could kind of, you know, you could look at many other cases around the world which would be very different. Other others other countries, yeah.
1: Could we pick up on the laws a bit more? Because I I realised earlier you said the thirteen fifty one Treason Act was still on the statute book. Yes. So is that still an active part of law? And you mentioned some other Tudor cases where they introduced kind of subsidiary laws. Is this are these all still live bits of um legislature? No.
2: Most I mean, all, all the Tudor laws were brought in for particular cases. There's uh, Henry VIII brought in a special treason act or treason law in 1534, which was very linked to those who were maliciously talking about his marriage to Anne Boleyn. That's a partic- very particular case. Um, Elizabeth I, in the late 16th century, she brings in special laws because of the threat of Catholic priests and the fact that she'd been excommunicated by the Pope. So those laws died with the uh, death of that monarch, actually. But it's a very useful thing to note that, I would say generally, if a state finds um, that traitors are difficult to prosecute under its own treason law, one way to deal with this is to bring in other laws, uh, other treason laws, and that's what the Tudors do. They bring in 68 new laws another way of dealing with this would be to manipulate the existing law, which I could certainly talk a little bit about. But the 1351 Act, yeah, that's incredible. That's been, that, that that's continuous. That's from 1351 up to the present day. It's still there. The only, I suppose, one of the major uh, things that happened was that 1998, the government of Tony Blair uh, removed the death penalty from the 1351 Act. But there's no way that that law would ever be used now because it's so archaic and lawyers, I think, hate it because it's so vague. It's very hard to kind of use in any meaningful sense. But it hasn't been removed. It's
1: still there. There are so many things I'd like to pick up on that. I mean, I'm kind of flabbergasted when you said there were 68 new laws under the Tudors alone. I mean, something we spoke about before we started recording was my sense was it was prior to the 1351 Act that English monarchs were using treason as a crime, almost arbitrarily suit their own ends. But it sounds like that carried on even after the Act was, well, put into law. Yeah,
2: it does, because although the 1351 Act, that was supposed to, uh, you know, as far as we know from what what we know of the, the introduction of that law, it was supposed to be the barons uh, trying to limit the power of the king, in this case Edward III, uh, because of the way traitors were just being kind of labelled as such by the monarch, really, and it was very arbitrary. A a lot of that was, you know, if you look at previous monarchs, I think a lot of that came in with Edward I. He had actually, around 1300, he had actually uh, really always started to declare what was treason. But yes, after after that, um, it was supposed to limit the powers of the monarch. But by the time we get to the Tudors, yeah, who are very, very powerful monarchs who certainly... It tells us a lot about the Tudor era, era that it's uh, a period of great insecurity for the monarchs. They feel threatened on the throne. Uh, there's always a problem over the succession under the Tudors. Um, so traitors are to be looked for, or w- watched, looked out for, essentially. And certainly, yeah, the um, Henry VIII, uh, particularly Henry VIII and Elizabeth I, certainly found ways to bring in new laws, and you could say were acting in a pretty arbitrary way in that way they were bringing in laws to meet new security threats one of the ways that they could actually deal with traitors was simply to get a, a what was called an act of attainder passed in parliament that you could say is a completely arbitrary piece of work in that what it means is that uh, the king just tells, par- or the queen just tells parliament to pass a law which declares an individual to be a traitor.
1: And certainly one thing that comes up in a number of period dramas and historical novels that someone is attainted. Can you just tell us what that means for the individual?
2: What it means for the individual is that, re- well, really, they're completely, the- it's a way of actually also making sure that the individual isn't put on trial. So the the regime or the, the monarch manages to avoid a trial of this individual which could be a public scandal or could be a real problem publicly instead it's almost you know you've um, you secretly just got this person labeled as a traitor actually another good example is thomas cromwell in 1540 he he was offered no trial he was just uh, they just passed an act of attainder and um he was declared a traitor taken off and executed there's always an element of this usually with acts of attainder it meant that your co- your property was completely confiscated and that of the heirs of the of the traitor. So uh, and that was quite normal with treason cases through the centuries that the traitor had their property confiscated as well they were supposed to be almost wiped off the face of the earth. But with acts of attainder in in England and in Britain that was also the case. So it was an advantage to the the, the crown because the uh, the monarch then got the property of this individual and all their all their wealth as well. So yeah, acts of attainder are a kind of you know a bottom line of how do you remove a traitor? You just get Parliament to pass a, an act which will declare this person guilty and um, to be executed. Yeah.
1: In those kind of times, would Parliament just simply agree with the monarch at that point, or would they would ever push back? Yeah, absolutely.
2: I can't. I can't think of the cases where a Parliament would. I mean, particularly under the Tudors, who had a, such a dominant place in the in a, a, power, a powerful position in 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 the country it was absolutely the case. But I mean you know, you if we went forward 100 years, another good example would be the Duke of Monmouth in the 1680s where the Duke of Monmouth rebelled uh, or, or launched a rebellion against James II. Well, he was actually executed after an act of attainder was passed by parliament and just taken out and just taken out and executed, so there was no need for a trial. But yes, again, I mean when it shows that the, the power of the regime, I mean it shows the power I suppose of the the monarch I'm not absolutely sure when acts of attainder stopped being used, probably after the 17th century. After after the 1690s, treason becomes a little bit more regulated in how it's dealt with. There are more rules about um, how trials should be handled. It's much more difficult for, uh, certainly for monarchs, to just step in and say what they want to happen.
1: Yeah, We've talked about monarchs making new laws. You also said earlier that they also manipulated existing laws. Um, Could you tell us a bit more about that side of things?
2: Yeah, I mean, I find that, I think that's a constant across, um, you know, different countries. We're not just talking about England here. It's how treason law can be manipulated. Treason law is usually very vague and regimes keep these uh, treason laws vague because then it's a kind of a catch-all. They can actually um, trap any types of threat, really, within that. So you just really say, well, you know if you're plotting to weaken the monarch or or eliminate the monarch. Well, what does that mean exactly? And the the point is a very useful point, actually, that in most treason laws, actually, it's not just carrying out the deed, it's also plotting the deed. So that gives a lot of leeway to regimes who want to kind of investigate plotters and round them up and perhaps you know put them on trial and execute them many of these people who were executed as traitors through the centuries were would they not actually managed to carry out the deeds they'd not actually married, managed to kill the monarch or plot you know uh, achieve the breakdown the the collapse of the state they've actually they've just been um just been plotting it but in terms of manipulating the law i think i would i would give some examples like a good example would be cases from britain in the 1790s when there was a, a range of treason trials at the time of the french revolution and the government of william pitt decided to make a, a case of some radical reformers one or two there were one or two key cases like there's one Thomas Hardy is a good example, not the novelist, he's a he's a shoemaker in the 1790s, and also uh, John Horne Took. There are one or two notorious cases around 1794 uh, where the government of William Pitt put these people on trial for treason and... These individuals were actually just really advocating radical reform, perhaps a bit in the spirit of the French Revolution, but I don't think they wanted to go that far. They just wanted radical re- political reform, and um, they were put on trial for treason. And the government basically found that the treason law, of, uh, the treason act of thirteen fifty one, was not adequate. But they tried to manipulate it by saying, "Well, if you if these individuals were." plotting radical reform that was the equivalent of trying to remove the, the monarch that was the equivalent of trying to kill the king so it's a kind of <laughs> it's a very indirect argument this that's just one example and actually it failed there was a notorious failure these treason trials these traitors were let off well you could say they weren't traitors at all they were just people you know agitators for reform but uh, the government did not succeed in those trials and they realized that the 1351 act was not a very suitable weapon and so a couple of years later they brought in another tree a different type of treason act to try to close that gap but that's just one little example it's like an example where you you tried to manipulate the language of the of the treason act in order to get what you want and sometimes it worked sometimes it didn't work
1: it's really interesting isn't it i suppose and probably the most famous example at least within britain the the gunpowder plot as they fall into that pot of being court planning rather than actually having achieved anything.
2: Yeah, no absolutely. They they um I mean that's the the gunpowder plot is very interesting because what's come down to us over the centuries is um you know we we're, we're encouraged to think these are the ultimate traitors, they were trying to blow up the king and parliament. But you know, if you're if you were a strong Roman Catholic, you would have a different view of these people. You would say well no actually these are martyrs, they had an ideal cause they were u- using violence but they people like Guy Fawkes would say well we're using violence against a regime which is already violence against violence against us but it's a really it's a good example this of traitors who had very divided loyalties they felt basically that their they had loyalty to their catholic faith and you know you could say they had loyalty to england but they felt england had been led astray By the reign of Elizabeth I, who had brought in all these different treason laws, and then James I, James VI and I, who had come in and they expected to be treated more tolerantly by him. So the gunpowder plot's an interesting way of thinking well, what is a traitor? from the point of view of the plotters they were not traitors they would say the 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 state the regime is the real tra- uh, traitor because they've betrayed us but of course it's the regime and uh, the the government which has the real power and they're able to control the conversation put these people on trial have them executed and then have this event celebrated for the next you know 250 years
0: Still to come on the History Extra podcast.
2: Parliament, basically, in the 1640s, had already been acting against some of Charles I's key advisors, Earl of Stratford and Archbishop Lord, and they had been found guilty and executed. And they had been found guilty of... Well, actually, they they've been found guilty, really, of being traitors to the state. So there'd been a steady movement in how treason was being defined as treason against the state.
3: Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot slash history extra.
1: I'm, I'm glad you mentioned divided loyalties because that was another avenue I wanted to explore. Is that another evolution of, um, I suppose, the, the kind of crimes that crimes and in inverted commas that we're talking about here they seem to m- evolve at least in my mind from people directly wanting to challenge for the throne and remove kind of kings versus just instigate a more gentle if still quite drastic social change is that a kind of fair trajectory to think about there's a there's a huge range of reasons of course why
2: Individuals might be accused of treason, or why they might act in a particular way. And some of them are idealists, like the Gunpowder Plotters. Uh, you could put in that category people like Roger Casement, the Irish nationalist in 1916. Others are really don't have any idealism; they're really just out. They're ambitious, and uh, they're out for political power. There are certainly a lot of cases like that. Then you have traitors who are completely mercenary, who are really just in it for the money, and uh, what they can get out of it by perhaps portraying the state abroad and getting paid for that. I mean, I, there are numerous examples like that. So, um, But the point is, I suppose, that from the point of view of the state or treason law or the, the government, uh, these will all be seen in the same category. They'll all be seen as a major danger to... The regime, or a danger to the country, uh, it doesn't really matter whether they're idealists or not. And I think many, many in many treason trials, you find the the prosecutors really don't want to dwell on the fact that these traitors might might have ideals. Yeah,
1: that's interesting point you make there about the whatever the kind of ideology, it's always a threat to the regime. On, on that basis, is it possible for someone accused of treason to have a fair trial?
2: Well, that's an interesting point. I think it's difficult because the cards are stacked against them and you have quite a few. There are many, many examples in Britain, British legal history, where you could say these are miscarriages of justice. And one of the examples, best examples would even be the last person to be executed for treason, which is William Joyce, Lord Hawthorne in nineteen forty six. Certainly say that his that was a miscarriage of justice and he didn't get a fair trial. I think it's very difficult because because, because of the uh, the evidence is very much in the hands of the crown. But I think again, if we go back to the Tudor period, it would usually be there are cases where the jury will let off traitors, and we've seen I've, I've mentioned the case of 1794, these um, uh, Thomas Hardy and the, the radical reformers. They were let off by the jury. So sometimes it depends whether you know the jury might just decide to ignore the, the prosecution. and so. But I think generally in earlier centuries, and I'm talking about, oh, 16th, 17th centuries, it was more difficult because there was more power given to the judge, more power given to the prosecution. There was actually no defence given to traitors until the 1690s, no defence lawyer. So they had to, uh, you know, you had to be very, the, the traitor had to be very articulate, had to know the law know the evidence, etc., and then they might manage to argue their case. But that's usually forgotten, that until the 1690s there were no defence lawyers in treason trials. So there's a huge weight of, you know, a weight given to the prosecution and the judge. They have the power really to push through what they want.
1: This is a little bit of a tangent, but you mentioned Lord Haw. -Haw. Am I right in understanding that He was caught for treason on the technicality of owning a British passport.
2: Yes, because, you know, um, you might well say this man was a traitor. He was over in Nazi Germany sending broadcasts daily back to Britain, which were encouraging uh, the British to give up and he'd been decorated by Hitler, etc. So when he was brought to trial in 1945, it was thought this would be an open and shut case, that this man had obviously aided the enemy, which is a, 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 a an element in the 1351 Act. Obviously he aided the enemy, it was a kind of open and shut case. But then it was suddenly found that he had not been a British citizen. Uh, he was American, he had never taken British citizenship. But what he had done is he, he had posed as... He'd posed as British in British official documents. He had lied, basically. He had got a British passport on three occasions, and on one of those occasions, in 1939, he had fled to Germany and kept this British passport for a year while he was starting to carry out these broadcasts. So on that basis, the prosecutor at the trial said, well, he had a British passport, so he owed allegiance to the Crown... In, in return for the protection that the British state was supposedly giving him, and on that technicality, you know, on that technicality, the jury found him guilty. And you could say, well, look, this is this is ridiculous. I mean, I always say to my students, you know, you should be very careful where you go anywhere. Uh, look in what's what's in your passport, where it says, you know, you have the uh, that the Queen will give you protection wherever you go, because that might suggest you owe the Queen allegiance, and it could be rather dangerous, really. But yeah. Yeah, I think looking at this from outside, obviously many people still thought, well, this man was a traitor. But technically, he couldn't be a traitor if he wasn't a British citizen. So you could say it was on a technicality that he was found guilty and and, and executed.
1: That's an incredible story. One other kind of little story I wonder if we talk a little bit about is, you, you mentioned with the French Revolution, having to redefine what treason is. And it kind of reminds me of something else I've seen you write about which is the regicide of Charles I. And you, you mentioned the Romans earlier as well. I mean, can you tell us how this all ties in, how Roman law applies to a Stuart monarch?
2: Yes, well, I mean, <clears throat> since the, the 1351 Treason Act of England was all defined as a crime against the monarch, so how do you then use treason law or, 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 or accuse a monarch himself of being a traitor? And that's the problem that the army leaders had by 1648-1649 with what to do with Charles I. They wanted to make sure that, uh, you know, there's been some historical discussion about this, but I think generally it's um, agreed that the army was set on trying Charles I and executing him. But the problem was, how could they do this? Uh, They couldn't use, they absolutely couldn't use the 1351 treason act but the parliamentary regime or the yeah the parliament basically in the 1640s had already been acting against some of charles I's key advisors earl of strafford and archbishop lord and they had been found guilty and executed and they had been found guilty of well, actually, they, they've been found guilty really of being traitors to the state. So there'd been a steady movement in how treason was being defined as treason against the state. And when they came to Charles I, yes, the 1351 Act absolutely couldn't be used at all. So the lawyers, uh, the legal experts, went back uh, over the centuries and they looked at what other laws could we use. And one of the uh, the ways of thinking about this was Roman law which was the idea of uh, a tyrant a tyrant or an emperor who was a tyrant could be put on trial for betraying his own people and they used that in the trial of Charles the I and if you look at the the arguments used in that trial uh, Charles the I is compared to Oma, uh, Roman emperors like Nero and Caligula. He's also compared to medieval English monarchs like uh, Edward II and Richard II, who have both been deposed for ruling, supposedly, in a tyrannical way. So that's, that's the arguments they use. But this period of the 1640s, 1650s was then later... Viewed when when the monarchy is restored under Charles II in 1660, this period of the 1640s and 50s was viewed as a very kind of um, illegal period where law had just gone all over the place, essentially. And they really reinstate the 1351 Treason Act in 1660. And it's a bit ironic. They use that then, of course, to Deal with the regicides and put these people on trial and execute them. Those those who had executed or uh, those who had brought Charles I to his death, they then put on trial in 1660 and had have them executed. So it's an interesting kind of it's an interesting interlude, we might say, the 1640s and 50s in a kind of illegal period uh, from some points of view. But what it does show is that there's a gradual move in treason law there to treason being defined not just against the monarch, certainly not in 1649, but also against um, against the state or against the, the wider community. And that thread will be picked up again in the 18th century where treason will gradually become more a case of threatening threatening all of us, you know, threatening the people who live in the country, not just threatening the the monarch or threatening the,
1: the regime. Well, actually that goes very neatly into something else I wanted to ask you, which was what you thought the worst punishment for a traitor was, because a lot of these trials seemed to end in one way, execution. Um, in my mind, I associate treason with being hanged and drawn and quartered, but that's very much medieval and England and only men. Um, So I just wondered what your perspective on that was.
2: I think hanging, drawing, and quartering particularly came in in the 1200s in England, and that is a particularly grisly punishment. It's supposed to be the worst type of punishment, and there is a particular reason. There's a symbolism about this, about you are hanged so that you will be left up in the air, you're not near the earth, you're not near god you're left in kind of limbo then you're brought down and you're castrated and your innards are taken out which is the drawing part of it that is supposed to be because you know you shouldn't be allowed to procreate i think it'd be a bit hard to work out how you could procreate after this anyway but um and then, uh, and then you are quartered. So your your body is, you know, split in four and, and, and sent in different directions, uh, possibly to different parts of the kingdom. But the whole point that there is a symbolism about the hanging, joy and quarter. It's not just supposed to be grisly. It's supposed to be a lesson to people looking on about the fate of the traitor that the traitor must be exterminated from any any signs of this individual must be removed from the earth hence their property will also be confiscated you know they're going to be wiped off they're, they're wiped off the face of the earth essentially that was though was essentially a punishment for ordinary people that would be if you were more of a commoner let's say from about 1200 i think the last incidence of that is in the 18th century. That's the last hanging, a drawing, a quartering. If you were of the nobility, that's a good example be something like Anne Boleyn or Catherine Howard, uh, wives of Henry VIII, or Duke of Monmouth, Earl of Stratford in the 1640s, Archbishop Lord in the 1640s. All of these individuals who were kind of, you know, more of upper-class upper society, clearly, they did not have to suffer that. They would um, have the privilege of being executed with an axe, you know, beheaded, or in Anne Boleyn's case, given special privilege of, you know, having a sword brought over from France to execute her. And even with hanging, drawing, and quartering, that was, as you said, that was for men, whereas it was burning for women. Uh, That was the usual a mode of execution. But you know, there are always there are always exceptions to this. Alice Lyle, unusual in being a woman who was tried and executed for treason uh, in Winchester. And she was um she was beheaded in the end. I mean she it was supposed to be she was burnt. She was supposed to be burnt at the state but kind of um she was given the uh you know the 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 sl- the lighter option <laughs> of being beheaded. And you know by the 19th century we've got far more humane methods of execution in England it would be hanging in Britain it would be hanging and this would be similar this is similar really around the world I would say I think I mean most of my research has been about or my my writing is on the Habsburg Empire in the 19th and early 20th centuries by the 19th 20th centuries uh, the the, the form of execution for traitors is hanging because that's felt to be really disreputable to be hanged uh, a a noble way of being executed is to be shot but uh before the nineteenth century we've got a similar methods of execution in Austria. we've got um, quartering for men uh I think it's beheading for women but i think i um I think you could find other countries where the most grisly methods are used simply because an example has to be set that this is the worst crime possible and it deserves the worst
1: kind of punishment we will chat about your research on Habsburg in a moment one question i, I came to my head before that is you mentioned of hanging drawing quartering um that one the kind of purpose is to wipe that person from the earth was the expression used now when we were uh, chatting in the pre-recording preamble one, one name you said hadn't been white from the earth at all, not through hanging, drawing, courting, was Quizzling. And I hadn't heard of Quizzling, but you assured me this is someone who anyone over the age of 40 would know that instantly. What's this person's
2: story? Well, Quizzling is a really fascinating case. I think, I mean, I may be wrong. It may be everyone over the age of 50, but I think if you're over the age of 50, you know what Quizzling is, that Quizzling became a syn- synonymous with the word traitor. And we're dealing here with the... Norwegian leader who took over power in Norway in 1940 during the Nazi invasion of Norway and basically was a collaborator with Nazi Germany and I think it's because when Churchill came to power when Winston Churchill came to power in in Britain at that time in 1940 it's exactly at that time when Quisling takes over power in Norway and uh, I have tried to investigate a little bit about when did the word Quisling become synonymous with traitor in Britain. It's around 1940-41, and it's through I think it's through speeches of Churchill because Churchill talks about there are all these Quislings hanging around in Europe who are collaborating with um, with Hitler. And again, if you go to the archives in London. You could do a kind of search online and you find actually that Quisling is mentioned, as you know, Quislings around in Europe. They don't mean the one in Norway. They mean just anyone who's collaborating closely with with Hitler at that time. So Quisling, though... Um, you know he he was really you could say very much a puppet of the Nazis in Norway, but of course it's a very and he was slightly he 's a slightly mad individual I mean he basically had a very small following in Norway, and at the end of the war, when he was put on trial for treason, he tried to argue that he had seen the best solution for Norway, and you know he tried to keep Norway out of the grasp of the Nazis and he'd done all he could to work for Norwegian interests. This didn't go down well at all. You know, it was thought that, no, he he tried to pretend he was a real idealist uh, on behalf of Norway, and I think he, he possibly was in his own mind, but basically yeah he was he was found guilty and he was he was executed and i've had some students doing little projects about quisling and they were in touch with norwegian historians and norwegian historians told them that basically quisling has not been rehabilitated at all he is still viewed as you know the lowest of the low in terms of Traitors to Norway, which is rather different to many other traitors. You know, m- many of the other ones we've talked about, you could say, were rehabilitated after their deaths uh, in different ways, or their reputation has been reevaluated. But I think with the case of Quisling, it's pretty hard to reevaluate somebody who just seemed to kind of seize power and then collaborate with Nazi Germany. You know, including
1: sending lots of Jews to their deaths. Who was it from history you're thinking of there when you're saying they've been rehabilitated by the passing of time? Yeah, I mean, if you think of
2: somebody like Anne Boleyn, or um, you know, some cases like that, or Thomas Cromwell, uh, were th- we know that these were trumped? Many of these were trumped up charges, really. I mean, Anne Boleyn possibly was guilty. I don't know, but you know, th- me- Thomas Cromwell that was a completely trumped up charge. But other cases I think well we mentioned the gunpowder plotters they've always had a a standing uh, among uh, Roman Catholics that they had done the right thing somebody like Quisling it's pretty hard to reevaluate I mean they they have a kind of mad idealism and you could say well in his own mind he thought he was doing the right thing but you know that's treason treason inevitably makes us think in kind of moral terms I would say almost every case has some kind of moral element to it so you are you you find yourself being drawn to think well you know is this person on the side of right or wrong and the Quisling case, you know, it's very hard to think about that as a kind of a moral case. Whereas, perhaps if you think about Thomas Cromwell, you might say, "Well, look, you know, this was a this was a, a an autocratic king removing a a
1: minister who had not done quite as much wrong as he thought he had." One more expansive question I thought we could end on was, from your kind of your knowledge of research, which traitor do you think has been most important to history?
2: You'd have to think about the particular country because uh, a traitor, which ha- who has important, you know, we mentioned Quisling. He has the most importance in Norwegian history, certainly, but uh, you know would not be quite so important for other other countries. In I mean, in the in the in the in the uh, research I've done, the traitor that it, uh, people tend to know about is Colonel Radel, Colonel Alfred Radel, in nineteen thirteen, who was found to be leaking. Uh, secrets to the Russians and had been doing it for about a decade. That was an absolutely notorious case, Colonel Radel. And here you have an example of somebody who had no idealism at all. He was just doing it for the money, basically. But that was uh, that was really that was a huge shock to the um, Austrian regime when they found that somebody uh, very high up in the system had been betraying secrets. So I suppose you know if we if we transport that to Britain. The case that people in Britain now know a lot about, or they when they think of traitors, they might think about the Cambridge Spies, and they might think about Burgess and McLean, for example, who escaped justice. They were obviously traitors under ter- in in terms of you know betraying the British state, betraying secrets on a regular basis, and they had been very high up in the system, so they were they were double agents. You know they'd been very high up in the in the state system. Uh, and perhaps um, they're notorious. Perhaps even more so because they were never caught. They managed to escape. So we might say they have a particular importance because they certainly sent a lot of people to their deaths by by the damage they did. But I think you know, the question of which traitor is more important—you you would have—is a good example of th- you have to think about each period of history um, has its own take on this, really.
0: That was Mark Cornwell, Professor of Modern European History at the University of Southampton. Earlier this year, Mark wrote a feature on 10 high-profile treason cases which appeared in BBC History magazine. It's available to read online now at historyextra.com forward slash treason. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Brittany Colley.